we would play games. We would say, ah, okay, I'm pretty sure that I'm looking here at the chemical signature of the Hunger Games because it was obvious it has two very strong peaks in isoprene, so we could easily recognize it. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Countries across the world use various content rating systems to classify the age appropriateness of movies. These systems, however, are based on subjective judgments of members of those countries' trade associations, which can vary widely. But what if a more objective standard were used to rate movies? Today, in episode 41 of Parsing Science, we'll hear from Jonathan Williams from the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry in Mainz, Germany, about his research into how the concentration of a chemical released into the air when people are stressed might provide an indication of the emotional tension that they experience at the movies. Here's Jonathan Williams. So hello, I'm Jonathan Williams. I work at the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry in Mainz in southwest Germany. I did my PhD in England in chemistry and French, actually, and then went and did my postdoc out in Boulder in Colorado. Both my PhD and my postdoc were focused on atmospheric science. Uh, I'm very interested in the chemistry of the atmosphere, how it, how the atmosphere functions, how it cleans itself, uh, the interesting mechanisms that go on in there uh, every day. Primarily, my group is interested in making measurements. So we take highly sensitive equipment into the field. We place the equipment on uh, high-flying aircraft or uh, ships that cross oceans or in far-flung places of the world where we think that atmospheric chemistry is particularly interesting, for example, in the Amazon jungle. And we measure the, the trace gases that are there and we interpret what's coming into the atmosphere and what the atmosphere is doing with all of this multitude of reactive chemicals. And so I think the excitement comes when you've got that data, you've got this really unique set of data and you work it up to sort of final and then you start to look at it, what does it mean? And that data is telling you something. It's something that no one else can see, no one else has seen before. And from that data, you can perhaps deduce how the atmosphere really works. And that's a real excitement. That's, uh, that's, that's where I get my kick, I have to say. Jonathan's research focuses primarily on atmospheric chemistry, a field concerned with the composition and chemistry of the Earth's atmosphere and the interactions between it and living organisms. In this study, however, he and his team examined the gases that people admit as they watch movies in theaters. Brian and I started our conversation by asking about the path which led him from studying the atmosphere outdoors to doing so indoors. First of all, you've got to realize that every living being lets off chemicals into its environment, okay, a farting aside, which is obviously what kids immediately think of. But, you know, through the skin and through the breath and through the, the tears and you know, various parts of your body plus clothes and everything, you're, you're emitting gases to the, to the atmosphere or to the environment. And that, that question, I think, immediately connects to anybody. If you just say, do those gases and emissions change when people change their emotional state or, you know, if they're angry or sad or happy or frightened or whatever. So um, I think there's just a fundamental question that just cropped up uh, along the way during our research. And we decided to pick it up and have a look at it, yeah. You have to imagine, we work normally in the summer, so our, because we're interested in photochemistry, so light-driven chemistry, our main business we do in the summer. So, for example, this summer we were flying on a plane over Africa, looking at the chemistry of clouds over Africa. 
And then in winter, we bring our instruments back in the lab and we calibrate, we work on data, and normally they just sit in the lab. But for the cinema manager, it's the other way around. In summer, there's not much going on. Uh, but in the winter, it's full house and he's really stressed because he's, you know, finding staff, he's running rotors and stuff. And we knew that, of course, we knew the cinemas would be full in winter. And we thought, oh, this is our opportunity. We just move the instruments from the lab, you know, just a few uh, miles down the road to the cinema, and we get some interesting measurements. But from his point of view, it was an unnecessary, unwanted uh, um, disturbance to start with, let's say. But I have to say, hats off to this guy. He, he Once he understood what we were after... He thought with us. He helped us um, actually adjust the ventilation system to 100%. He was very enthusiastic. And actually, we've been in contact since. He's often dropped by and he's interested in the instrument. So, yeah, we've made a good uh, connection there. I think we've talked to a lot of the cinema uh, workers at the CineStar a lot about atmospheric chemistry through this project, strangely enough. Yeah. No, they're very enthusiastic, very helpful. And once they were... Once they understood the questions that we wanted to ask, they, you know, they were on board and, uh, and interested. Yeah. Science is often guided by a series of questions that lead researchers from one idea to the next. Of course, not all questions warrant scientific investigation, much less do they lead to meaningful insights. So we were interested in having Jonathan tell us about what made him curious to study the atmosphere within movie theaters in particular. It really was built on a series of um, quite logical questions that came up in the course of our research. And each question we thought, okay, how can we tackle this and how can we answer this in a reasonable way? We have built in the jungle, so far from any, any towns or people, a very large tower. So the tower is about 325 meters high, um, which is just a bit taller than the Eiffel Tower. When you stand on the top, all you can see is rainforest. And what happens is every day the sun rises, the trees start to photosynthesize. And as they do, they release into the atmosphere sort of hundreds of thousands of these very reactive chemicals. And, and we measure at various heights on this tower and sort of quantify how that, that chemistry proceeds. Okay, so we're monitoring that. Now, we do that with these very sensitive, very fast uh, mass spectrometers, which we place in laboratory containers at the bottom of the tower. So picture the scene, I'm in the jungle camp and uh, our students are coming back into the camp and they come back shaking their heads and they say, you know, I'm not sure anymore that we should be focusing on the Amazon. They've got to confess because when they were calibrating this very expensive mass spectrometer, uh, these students couldn't resist breathing into the mass spectrometer. And to be honest, and nobody can resist it. Every time you get one of these things, you, you breathe in it and you see what's on your breath. Um, but what they noticed immediately was that a lot of the molecules that we were focusing on in the Amazon, uh, for example, the molecule isoprene, which is one of the main emissions from the Amazon, they noticed that it was also at very high concentrations in, in their breath. And so they posed the logical question. This was the sort of first question in the series. They said, well, if there's a lot of isoprene on human breath, and we all know there's now, what, 7 billion people on the planet, could it be that humanity is now a bigger source uh, of isoprene than the Amazon? Could it, could it simply be that we are now overtaking the Amazon? So we liked that question and we thought, well, how can we, how can we do this? How can we work it out? So the obvious thing to do would be just to breathe in the mass spectrometer and then multiply what, you know, what the student gets by 7 billion, right? And get a, a number. But we also thought maybe there would be 
considerable differences from person to person, which would maybe throw our calculation off or make it even more uncertain than the, you know, the 7 billion multiplication. So what we decided to do was to try to get an average breadth spectrum of a lot of people together in a particular environment. Fortunately for us, right next door to the Institute is the football stadium of the local football team. And uh, this is the perfect scientific apparatus for making a, an average breadth spectrum. So we took our instruments and put them in the football stadium. The crowd arrive, the crowd go, and we get an average breadth spectrum of the entire 31,000 people in two hours. That was our, our tactic. That's pretty much what we did. And, and to cut a long story short, we worked out that, in fact, the Amazon is far more important uh, in total in its total emissions than, than the whole of humanity, at least at the moment. So uh, at least that's one, one thing we discovered. But while we're at the football game, and maybe you're already thinking this in the background a little bit, while we were at the football game, we noticed our signals, the signals of all these chemicals that we're measuring, going up and down at various points in the game, and we started to generate another question. And that question was, do the chemicals coming out of this crowd of people, do they change a lot when, when, they're, when they're disappointed or when they're extremely euphoric? You know, especially, you know, you, you can imagine the scene maybe when the football team scores, right? Uh, the whole crowd roars. There's a sort of euphoric roar. Um, when that occurs, it could well be that the chemicals in the air change as well. And we were like very intrigued by this question. Do we in any way change our chemical environment when, when we're reacting to certain audio or visual stimuli? Um, we thought the next logical place to go would, of course, be a cinema or you know, a movie theater. And of course, in a movie theater, it's an enclosed box. And there's always fresh air coming in under the seats, air being sucked out through the ceiling. And so basically what you have is a box of people and you can frighten this box of people with a horror film, or you can make them laugh with a comedy film all at the same time. And all of their gaseous emissions, if you like, from the skin, from the hair, from the, from the breath, uh, they're all swept up through the ventilation system. And we simply uh, wait in a technical room at the back with our inlet uh, stuck in the ventilation system and just monitor how the signals change with time. Jonathan and his team measured changes in the isoprene levels present in movie theaters using a mass spectrometer, a scientific instrument which uses electromagnetic fields to measure the mass of particles sampled from ambient air. They've previously been employed in applications ranging from mapping the location of individual atoms to analyzing gases on Mars. But just how does mass spectrometry work anyhow? Jonathan explains after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Jonathan Williams. It's about the size of and weight of a washing machine, I would say. Um, uses about the same amount of power and takes uh, a couple of strapping lads to lift it. It's quite sort of semi-heavy. And the type of mass spectrometry that we use uh, is called proton transfer reaction mass spectrometry. 
So a lot of a lot of chemical mass spectrometry is done with very exotic ions, very exotic reagents. But actually, we use uh, water as our starting point uh, for this type of mass spectrometry. It's actually quite nice. So the way it works is you put gas phase water in an ion source, which is pretty much like a lightning chamber. And this sort of gas phase water goes through the lightning chamber. And the result of discharging voltage through this gas phase water is a water molecule, which is H2O, of course, with an extra proton on top. Okay, that's what comes out of the ion source. And so what comes out is H3O+, not H2O, but H3O+. So it's um, a water molecule which is, let's say, un- encumbered with this extra proton. And then what we do is we pass these ions through ambient air, and the ions bang into all the different molecules that are in ambient air. And, and if you want to personalize it a little bit, maybe slightly less than scientific, but just for the understanding, uh, let's say the water is trying desperately to get rid of this this extra proton it has. Energetically, it doesn't want to keep it. It wants to get rid of it. And every time it bangs into another molecule, that's an opportunity for it to exchange the proton with, with another uh, the colliding molecule. And luckily for us, when it bangs into nitrogen, which is the most abundant gas in the atmosphere, nothing happens because the, the nitrogen will not accept the proton. Energetically, it's uh, just not interested. Same with oxygen, same with argon, same with all the major constituents of the atmosphere. However, all the trace constituents, these gases that we're interested, these volatile organic compounds, these ones that are down at the parts per billion and parts per trillion level, fortunately for us, they do accept this proton and they become charged. And once they become charged, then you can detect them with a mass spectrometer. You can essentially uh, send this, this ion, this singly charged ion, through a magnetic field uh, or a changing electromagnetic field and determine very accurately the mass of that ion. And when you know the mass, then you can interpret uh, what the molecule is. The beauty of this system is it, can, it operates continuously. So it's operating all the time, we say online. So if you breathe in it, immediately you see a peak. It's not something where you have to capture a sample and inject it into something. It's operating continuously. And that's very important for capturing these very short temporal uh, events. So that's a little bit how that works. While theaters may be boxes with people in them, there are also modern facilities with air conditioning and heating systems. Doug and I were curious how Jonathan and his team controlled for the volatile organic compounds that people attending the movies had previously exhaled into the air. Normally in the winter, what they like to do is to do a very small recirculation just to save uh, heat, basically, for economical reasons. But when we talked with the cinema that we were working with and we explained what we wanted to do, they just changed their air conditioning to the the normal summer setting, which is the um, 100% fresh air from outside coming in through the seats and being swept out through the ceiling. Because then we just get... um, no interference from any other signals or so like that. And actually, the, the cinema uh, people, the movie theater manager was kind enough to give us the program. And he said, oh, you know, uh, in Cinema 2, the Star Wars today, do you want to measure that? Yeah, okay. So we can change the inlet and put it in Cinema 2 and, and measure the chemical signatures of the movie Star Wars, for example. But at first, I have to say, students, everyone was very suspicious. It wasn't the sort of, yeah, it's sort of jumping out of the norm, isn't it? So 
But um, yeah, that's what makes it exciting. That's where you sort of find discoveries, isn't it? But after a while, people got really into it and uh, yeah, got excited about the, the whole project. Particularly when we started to um, even recognize the film from the chemical trace. That's when it started to get interesting because that's the beauty of this uh, setup. In one of these uh, multiplex cinemas, they show a given film, let's say Star Wars. Of course, they show it many times, you know, for a couple of weeks, they show it several times a day for several days a week. And that's, of course, very important scientifically because then we can deduce which peaks are reproducible. So if you show the same film to a different 250 people, and you show the same film to a different 250 people the next day, you can look and see if the peaks are aligning, then those same moments in the film were inducing the same response in people. So uh, this possibility of reproducibility was was key. And uh, we, we, we would play games. We would say, oh, okay, I'm pretty sure that I'm looking here at the chemical signature of the Hunger Games because it was obvious it has two very strong peaks in Isoprene, so we could easily recognize it. At that point, when we're playing those sort of games, you start to think, hey, wait a minute. If we can do that, there must be more more in this than perhaps we first thought. During the eight weeks of their study, Jonathan and his team collected isoprene samples in 135 screenings of 11 different films from two separate cinemas involving more than 13,000 people. After doing so, they used a random forest approach in their data analysis, one of the most popular methods of classifying to which set of categories a new observation, such as a newly sampled VOC, belongs. Here, Jonathan tells us how they applied this method to answer the research questions. I mean, typically in the atmospheric sciences, we use just reasonably common tools to analyze data to make correlations. And uh, this was a step up from that. So we contacted a group here on campus, very close to where we work, and they are really the data mining specialists. So in the first study, what, what they did essentially was to analyze the data with a sort of forward prediction model. So what they would do is they would take two thirds of the film data that we've recorded plus the labels, and they would create this random forest model and they would test this model's predictive ability uh, with the remaining third of the data. And then they would remix and remix 16 times uh, different mixtures of the films to see if it was robust. And uh, with that forward prediction, that's the kind of prediction that economists use all the time to sort of predict share prices and stuff they could see which masses that we were measuring could be predicted by a knowledge of the past labels and masses in the films. And so from that, you would see a sort of some of the masses were predictable and a lot of the masses were not predictable. That was the forward prediction. And then they sort of did for a sort of more causality type analysis, they did a sort of reverse version of that where they reverse predict to see whether they can say what label must have occurred to have got the particular pattern of uh, changing masses. And so what you get there is a label prediction, which you can compare with the label which was in the data, and you can see whether the la which labels were best predicted. And what came out of that analysis was that the best predicted labels were all of the labels connected with suspense, so hiding, mystery, um, fighting, running, uh, those ones, and also comedy, strangely enough. So those labels were, were sort of well connected to the chemicals, whereas other ones were just simply not. And that can be in part that there's no connection, or it could be in part that there were no scenes which were really strong enough or showing enough of uh, that particular uh, label. 
I think that's something you have to realize. The way we've labeled is an uncertainty in the whole thing. I think it's the, it was the only way forward with that particular data set. We had to create these labels to try to analyze. And indeed, I think we see that there's something there, but we're not quite sure what it is yet uh, because we ourselves created these labels. It's a bit like, uh, as an analogy, in a dark room, you sort of touch an elephant. It's very big and it's very interesting, but you, you're not quite sure what it is. Uh, I, 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 so that's my feeling at the moment, that there's simply something very interesting there, but uh, we have to find different ways of finding out what it is and that, what these effects are linked to. The chemicals that many plants and animals give off are a complex mix of gases, and in 1981, isoprene was identified at the University of California, Los Angeles, as the most abundant hydrocarbon measurable in the breath of humans. Doug and I were interested in hearing more about these gaseous cocktails and what we can learn from knowing about their presence in the air. It's easy for people to grasp that in an exciting moment in a film, because of the enhanced breathing rates and the the enhanced pulse rates, that the amount of CO2 will go up and you'll get a sort of momentary peak in in a particularly exciting moment, for example. But along with CO2, comes all of these hundreds of VOCs, which I mentioned we can measure. And so, as I say, isoprene is one of our favorites, um, simply because it comes out in enormous quantities from the rainforest. So something like 500 million tons of isoprene are emitted into the global atmosphere each year. It's one of the the fundamental building blocks uh, in a plant. It's a five-carboned molecule looks a little bit like a horse when you draw it in their sort of chemical bonds. We also know that it's one of the main components of human breath. Now, what we don't know is, and it's quite surprising maybe, is um, we don't know with 100% surety exactly where this isoprene comes from. In fact, surprisingly little is known about the inner metabolism leading to the breath emissions. It's actually quite surprising. There are textbooks of breath analysis on my shelf where they openly admit that that those mechanisms and production mechanisms are poorly known. But currently what is thought is that as part of the natural cholesterol synthesis in the body, a side product is the molecule isoprene. And isoprene is stored after its production in the body, it's stored in your muscle tissue. So in your legs and your arms, any large muscle area seems to store isoprene. So what that means is now if we both stand up and jump up and down here while we're talking, the clenching of the muscle, the flexing of the muscle will drive that isoprene into the bloodstream and you'll get a peak of isoprene uh, some moments later on your breath. Uh, It's as sensitive as that. And we even see that in the cinema. So when the audience get up to leave at the end of the movie, there's always a big peak of isoprene as everyone stands up to leave, you see. And that marks very well the end of the film, interestingly enough. But also uh, in fight scenes, you know, um, this is this is how I think is happening. In, in, for example, a fight scene, people are sort of clenched up. They're sort of really empathizing with the hero or heroine in the, in the piece. And they're, you know, sort of going from side to side, dodging the spears as they come out and whatever with the hero at the time. And through those movements, this is my guess, I haven't confirmed this, but this is what I'm thinking is happening. That's what's behind the isoprene signal variation uh, helping to classify films. Simply that level of twitching or uneasiness or discomfort that a person feels in a film is related to the variation in the isoprene. That's, that's kind of how I'm interpreting the results. 
In addition to the gases moviegoers emit, Brian and I assumed that other substances would also be present in the theater's air, such as the chemicals used to conjure up the buttery smell of popcorn. Here's what Jonathan had to say. When we first started on this, that was kind of what I was expecting, just a sort of mix of popcorn, Coca-Cola, leather jacket, perfume, just a random thing. And so when the peaks started to form this sort of muster of uh, peaks and this reproducible pattern, that's when we started to think, oh, it's interesting, we can look into this further. But just for safety, we did indeed, yeah. We sniffed popcorn, we sniffed Coca-Cola, we sniffed, uh, what else could you buy there? These funny... uh, uh, taco chips, uh, beer, of course. Beer is uh, freely available in German cinemas. People can drink it. And actually, there's an interesting uh, observation. So on Saturday night, we're recording a, a movie, Walter Mitty. I don't know if you know the movie Walter Mitty, but uh, there's a point in the movie where Ben Stiller walks into a bar and he orders a beer, okay? And when he does that, it's obvious that in the cinema, everybody remembers, ah, yeah, I've got a beer as well. Because what happens is they all reach down and drink it. And we immediately see at the bar scene a really clear ethanol peak just afterwards. So the only way you could get such a big peak is if in concerted action, the audience drink together and produce a sort of big ethanol spike. And it it, it sounds surprising, but when you think about it, beer is about 5% alcohol. And when you pour uh, a beer solution onto a hot surface, which is your tongue, of course you evaporate a lot of the alcohol straight back out into the air. And that's exactly what we measured. We would measure a spike in the bar scene. So it's quite interesting. Just prior to our discussion, Doug and I also read an article examining if there might be a universal hierarchy among the five senses in humans. The scientists behind the study looked at the prevalence of sensory imagery and language to estimate the predominance of each of the senses in human experience. What they found was that, with few exceptions, smell appeared to be poorly coded across many languages. So we finished our conversation by asking Jonathan what he believes the importance of smell is in our everyday lives. If you interviewed a person on the street, you just went out and said, you know, uh, rank for me the, the senses, sight, sound, and, and smell. I think smell would come last in most people's uh, assessment of it. But whether that's really the case, I don't know. I mean, um, from our research, what we, what we show is that there are signals being broadcast from people as they, as they respond to these audiovisual signals. It's kind of an intriguing thing when you're sitting inside the cinema. There's moving pictures, which you see. There's the sound, the music, which you see. But you don't see it, but around you, the chemical environment is also changing up and down. And that is the golden question. Are people perceiving those changes in signal? Are they in any way reacting to those uh, changes in signal? Uh, we haven't answered that question. And that's something that would be very interesting to pursue, yes. It's interesting how we sort of undervalue our, our sense of smell. I think uh, it's... It's more there than than we think. I mean, we all know, like, for example, on my way to work, I walk past a bakery, or especially on my way home, I walk past the bakery, I get a whiff of this bread that's breaking, and immediately my stomach starts to to grind and say, oh, yeah, I could do with a brochure or whatever it is. And uh, so clearly what's happening is the chemical signals coming to my nose and my brain is processing it and I'm reacting with this sort of hunger thing. So those chemical signals are coming in and I am reacting to it. The question is, are these subtle signals that we're seeing from groups of people also being perceived and acted on in some way physiologically? So 
obviously the reason that I like this particular area of research is I'm extremely intrigued in the chemical signals that people produce and how much they influence us, how they influence others with, our, with, our, with these particular emissions. But going to corner me and ask me to believe something, I, I could believe that we are being influenced more than we currently know by chemical signals in the atmosphere. And that could be a very broad thing. So, um, you know, how we walk through a forest and, and what the effect of the chemistry of the forest is on us as we breathe it into our bodies or how we respond to mass groups of people, how their, their presence affects us. Uh, I think, um, I believe, if you like, there's a lot more to be discovered in that. That was Jonathan Williams discussing his article, Proof of Concept Study, Testing Human Volatile Organic Compounds as Tools for Age Classification of Films, which he published in the October 11, 2018 issue of the journal PLOS One with six other researchers. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org e41, along with bonus audio and other materials we discussed during the episode. Interested in the latest developments in science? Then sign up for our weekly roundup of science news from across the disciplines at parsingscience.org newsletter. Or if you would like to check out our first 20 issues, go to parsingscience.org news. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Masaya Soma from Hokkaido University in Sapporo, Japan. She'll talk with us about her research into monogamous songbirds, which intensify their singing and dancing during courtship rituals to advertise their mating status, but only while in the presence of an audience of other birds. Even when the audience was male or female, they show increase in dancing. We also found that the audience effect was much stronger for opposite sex audience conditions. We hope that you'll join us again.